Well, good morning, First Family. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? Let me tell you, friends, I want to say congratulations to you seniors. We are proud of you. I want to say to you families, we're proud of you too. I was standing in the Welcome Center watching some of you come in and was reminded of the last 5K that I ran. Standing at the finish line, some of you came in going, oh, sweet Jesus. One of you was honest enough to say, we've never been to church this early, Darren. We bless you for getting here that way, all right? But really, more than that, I want to say we are proud of you. The accomplishments that you have achieved today, most of you have already graduated. The ones who haven't will finish this weekend. We are proud of you. It is no small thing. And the best news is this is the first step in the next part of your journey. God has much more ahead for you, and I'm glad that we get to be a part of that. That Bible that we gave you when you came up here a moment ago, my prayer is that it will be the compass that guides your life, that it won't be something you just stick on the shelf and say, oh, I remember when I got that, the church gave it to me, but that it'll be something that you allow to speak into your life on a regular basis. Friends, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bible open already there, then celebrate with me in this. We've talked about Philippians the last couple of weeks, so we're just continuing in that theme today. When we turn to chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes a turn. Instead of talking about the Philippians, he talks about himself. He talks about himself not because he's the most important part of the, part of the story, but because he is not the most important part of the story. We might say that he says it something like this, Jesus, thank you for helping me get here. Thank you, Jesus, for helping me get here. That's the title we've chosen for today, and it's the one that we embrace for our seniors. As my friend John David rightly noted, they didn't get here by themselves. We stood with them. We walked with them. You parents cajoled them, loved them, led them each step of the way to get them here. But really, it is Jesus that we thank for helping us get here. When we start chapter 3, we see Paul talking about himself. He's talking about his background, how he came up, his training, and how gifted and blessed he was with a great and rich and beautiful heritage. But a good heritage, a good start is only that, a start. I think about Joseph Alkwawi. Joseph, in 1968, was sent by his country, uh, Tanzania, to Mexico City to participate in the Summer Games. He was a distance runner. He'd been sent to run the final event of the Olympic Games, the marathon, 26.2 miles. The only problem that Joseph had was that in all of his training, he'd never run more than about 15 miles. So that last 11 was going to have to be new territory for him. He'd never even completed a marathon in his running career, and yet he thought this was the time to get that started, to honor his country. They'd sent him for that purpose, and so away he went. At about the 19 mile mark, an accident occurred. There was a collision between runners and Joseph was knocked down. 
His kneecap was dislocated. He reached down and corrected that. He stood up and knew that he had a problem. He knew that there was a long way left to run. By the time he arrived in the Mexico City Stadium where the Olympic event was being held and where the finish line was, it was almost three and a half hours after the race had started. The winners had finished more than an hour earlier. The winners had long since had the medals draped around their necks and the stands were beginning to empty. The custodians were sweeping up and it looked as if the event was over, but the organizers said, no, there's still one more running. It took a while, but here came Joseph, limping with each step, clearly in pain, struggling, struggling, struggling. People tried to convince him to stop and to let that be the end of it. After all, there's no way to win. What's the point in finishing? Oh, friends, that wasn't good enough for Joseph. He struggled that last lap around the track, and when he finished, he fell. And that's where the stretcher picked him up. One of the organizers came to him and said, Joseph, why? Why did you keep running? This is what he said, and it's something I think the Apostle Paul would echo in what my friend Justin read a moment ago. My country did not send me all this way to start a race. They sent me to finish one. May we learn from Joseph's example as we say with Paul, Jesus, thank you for helping me get here. It's no small thing. I'm more convinced than ever, completing a big goal like graduating high school is a bigger deal now than it's ever been. In an age where quitting is the norm and giving up has become an art form, completing a big task is something worth celebrating. We congratulate you whether you are magna cum laude, top of the class, or thank you lordy, at the bottom of the class. This is the precursor to what comes next. Just don't forget what God has taught you along the way. We're going to talk about some of those things that Paul mentions in this section. Let's start here. I'm not there, Paul says. I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. See it in verse 12 again, won't you? Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let's talk for a second about what Paul has gained because Paul's gain is significant. One, he gained a knowledge of Christ. Now, if you go back and you look at his earlier section, the section verses 1 to 11, you'll see he had a knowledge of God. But the difference between what he had and what he has now is the difference between the head and the heart. In the early part of the chapter, Paul knew a lot about God. He understood conceptually who God was, and he understood what God was doing, and he understood God's plan for the future in some respects. He had a knowledge of God. He knew the right way to look the part. He knew the right way to act the part. He knew how to dress the part. But it never, it seems, made it from here to here. 
when we see what he says in verses 12 and following, we see that he has gained a knowledge that has made that journey from head to heart. He knows Christ now in a different way. He knew about God then. Now he knows Christ intimately as a friend knows a friend. He understands the desire Christ has, not just for Paul, but for all of humanity. He can trust the, the heart of Christ and rest in the intimacy of their friendship. This sort of knowing leads us away from intellectual knowledge and toward a friendship. And there's a second thing that Paul knows. He knows of the righteousness of Christ. The whole section in verses 1 to 11 speaks of living up to the standards that God has. Living up to them. This is the bar that God wants you to clear. This is the bar that God asks you to jump over. This is the way to righteousness in God, is keeping all of these commandments and all of these rules. But what Christ did was change the equation. He cleared the bar and then lowered it so that we might come in too. Not only for those who were Jewish, such as the friend of the Apostle Paul, but for those of us who are not. See, the whole Pharisee methodology was works-based. Do it this way and you'll get, a, get home. How can I make myself righteous? Let's pause here for a moment and say some of us are still trying. Some of us want to live up to God's standards so we can congratulate ourselves on our own achievement. Some of us want to live up to God's standard and say, see, God didn't just do it. He did it with me. Let's be clear, friends. None of us can or will achieve the righteousness of Christ. What Jesus has done in us and for us is to take his own robe and place it on our shoulders. The fancy theological term is imputation. Christ has placed it on us. He has credited to our account, not because of our choices, but because of our faith response to the righteousness of Christ given to us. Now, Paul knows the righteousness of Christ. There's a third thing that he knows also. He knows the fellowship of Christ. Ah, fellowship. The connection of two souls together. The connection between two different entities that are now united. This fellowship is more than just partnership. It is an incremental, incremental connection between lives. So if these are all the things that Paul has gained, knowledge of Christ, righteousness of Christ, fellowship with Christ, then what has Paul lost? That's an important question to ask too. Let's talk about it. He's lost the pain of self-righteousness, of yet again not being the man he wants to be. He's lost the anger and bitterness of rage at God. He's lost the bitter gall of animosity and regret. He's lost the prison of never being enough. He's lost all of these things 
because they are worthless. There's no sense in talking about something that you know is trash. When you have something that's trash, you get rid of it. You know, in a few months, we'll celebrate Halloween, and one of the fun things about it is masks. We all get to put on a facade and make it out like that's who we are for the day. But we know better. Those masks are just that. What Jesus invited Paul to was to surrender the mask and be something completely different than he was. And that's why Paul says, I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. How can you take this home? I want to give you a couple of things. One, self-righteousness is a trap. Ensnaring me into never being good enough. So let's leave it here, friends. Whether you're graduating from high school or that's something that was 70 years ago for you, let us rejoice that self-righteousness is not something that we need any longer. Here's the second thing I want you to take home. Jesus came for my holiness, and that's always been his goal for me. He doesn't want me to be better than somebody else. He wants me to be like him. Jesus came to make me holy. Moving on, the Apostle Paul takes it up in verse 13. I don't consider, brothers, that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One of the great regrets that the Apostle Paul reflects over and over again in his writings is the fact that Paul must leave the past behind him in order to shadow Jesus. And that's what he calls on us to do. I got to let the past go because I can't fix it. But what I can do is stay close enough to Jesus to be in his shadow. Said another way, the Apostle Paul says, I can't change where I've been, but I can change where I'm going. I can't change where I've been, the Apostle Paul seems to say. See it in verse 13 again, forgetting what lies behind me. There are things in Paul's past that he wishes weren't there. What are they? Go back to Acts 8, Acts 9 and you'll find at least one of them. There we find the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And at the end of that eighth chapter, we find a curious note. Saul of Tarsus is standing nearby while Stephen is slaughtered, giving approval to what's happening. That event and others like it were something the apostle never really got over. I wonder if there are things in your life that haunt you still. I wonder if there's something in your past that you wish wasn't there. I wonder if there's something that every time you turn around, Satan throws it back in your face. I wonder if something in your choices in your past has caused you to say, I wish I had chosen more wisely. I wish that I had chosen not as foolishly. Can I tell you today, we can't change where we've been. 
It's like what we talked about a few weeks ago. It's trying to drive while looking in the rearview mirror. Friends, I want to encourage you to be like the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind. You can't fix it. If you constantly look in the rearview mirror trying to, you can't ever see where you're going. Paul, in his journey, recognizes that and says, okay, I can't fix that, but what can I do? That's what he says in the second half of 13. Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's where I'm going. I can't fix where I've been, but I sure enough can correct my course going ahead. Paul's analogy is that of a, a runner leaning into the finish line, into the tape at the end. Coming in first isn't Paul's objective. Growing in Christ is. Faithfulness gets me there in a way that success, as measured however you want to, never will. Faithfulness is better than success. The destination isn't nearly as important as the journey. What if I spend a lifetime climbing a ladder only to find it's leaned against the wrong wall? I'm staying close enough to Jesus to be in his shadow so that that doesn't happen. I want to give you a couple of things to thank God for. To thank God for in order that you might leave the past behind you and stay close to Jesus. One, you can thank God for the path you've walked. Huh. I've known more than a few people who would have scoffed at that idea. Thank God for the path I've walked, Aaron? No. The path I've walked, some will say, is one filled with brokenness. I will say that I've known some people that it seemed like more rain fell in their lives. I'll say that there have been people that I've wondered and asked the Lord, what are you doing in them and to them, Lord? But that brings me to the second thing. Thank God that the journey is the destination. The path God walks me down, whether it's an easy or a hard one, is the one that he's chosen for me if I'm staying close to Jesus. Staying close to Jesus is easier sometimes than others, isn't it? It's easy to stay close to Jesus when things are going well, when he takes us places we want to go, when those paths are easy, when the sunshine is warm and the path is easy, when there's no rain on the horizon and we can certainly continue to walk with him, that's when we can rejoice. But what Jesus wants us to do is trust him even when the path isn't. One more thing, and it's where Paul ends this section. Maturity makes things clearer. I won't ask any of you if this is the case for you, but seniors, let me again speak to you for just a moment. I thought by the time I was this age, 55 years old, I would be smarter. I would be wiser. The path would be more clear. I thought that I would know more, and I thought I would know what to do, and I would know what to say, and I would know how to say it. 
Maturity makes things clearer, but growing old doesn't guarantee maturity. Let me read verses 15 and 16 for you one more time. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, uh, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. What is it that we're supposed to think this way about? Well, to get the answer to that, you go back to verses 13 and 14 about standing close to Christ, staying in his shadow. It goes along with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter. One of the ending verses is this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, maturity demands that I surrender some things. And I lay them aside. Because they will no longer serve me the way they once did. I must let them aside in order that my hands are free to pick up something else. Maturity. It calls me from an earlier form of life toward a more complete understanding of myself my surroundings, my future, my family. It demands I surrender what I once thought how life would be in favor of being with Jesus, the highest standard available. It means that I move forward toward the fullness of life, and it means that I hold on to what Jesus has already made clear. That's what verse 16 says. That's where we'll end today holding fast to God's truth, to what we've already understood. What we already understand about God's word is what he wants us to hang on to. He's not asking us to understand things that are too big for us. He's just asking us to hold true to that which we already know. It's a present tense active verb. It means to hold on not just now, not just later, but for always and make it a matter of existence when we hold on. Our holding on becomes a matter of life, a habit ingrained in us. Paul's commission for us and for himself is to stand firmly on what God has already made clear in order that God will expand our horizons and grow us one step at a time. Two things I want you to take home and then we'll call for the invitation. Here's what it is. Pursue Christ-centered goals so as to be spurred, spurred toward Christ. Think of it this way. Whatever I set my compass to will be the direction that I move toward. Seniors, my encouragement to you is to let that be Jesus Christ, to let his word govern your lives. Not popular opinion, not what others think, but what Jesus said. And that brings us to the last thing. Actively hold true to what God has already done. If you skip over to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find something about who you are in Christ. Who you are, believer, in Christ. And there you will find what God has already done to make you who he sees you to be. Today, 
My prayer is that you will embrace that calling. My prayer is that you will reach forward like the Apostle Paul did toward Christ and forget what's behind you so that it doesn't become a distraction in order that you might find the fullness and righteousness of Christ like he did. Well, where does this start? Oh, it starts with Jesus. Doesn't it always? If you've never invited Christ into your life, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call on the name of the Lord today. It's not hard. Jesus, come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I recognize that I need you as that. It's that easy. Living it out is the hard part. But if you need help getting it started, here's what I want you to do. In just a second, we're going to stand up. I want you to come down here and talk to me and let me help you find that next step. Maybe you've already done that and you've never taken the first step of obedience. Baptism. You're in luck. Next week, we already have baptism scheduled, four of them. It'll be an exciting day. We can include you in that number two. We'd love for you to be included in that. Come down and let's talk about how you can be baptized. Maybe you've already done that and you need a church home. We invite you to join us here as we serve the Lord together to be a part of the first family and to walk with us. We'd be delighted to have you. Maybe you need to come to this altar and spend some time asking the Lord to help you forget what is behind you. Or pray for a friend who is hurting or a relationship that's broken. This is the day God has given you for connecting with him. Let's pray together. I'm so grateful, Lord Jesus, for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. One who had things in his past that he wished weren't there, but he didn't let it define him. And I pray you wouldn't let us, wouldn't let us be defined by our past either. Instead, let us lean in just like you called Paul to, to lean in to knowing you, not just knowing about you, but knowing you. Will you do your work now in each of our lives, Lord Jesus? Reshape our hearts, reshape our minds. Help us, Lord Jesus, to find in you the righteousness you meant for us to have. We surrender ourselves to that, Lord Jesus, in order that we too might finish the race. So guide us, Lord Jesus. Let our hearts be ruled by you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and making us yours. In Jesus' name.